Hi, and welcome to The Full Bloom Project, a body-positive parenting podcast dedicated to promoting emotional wellness in our children and health at every size for the whole family. Each week, we speak with extraordinary experts and distill everything from scholarly research to self-help books into accessible and digestible daily parenting practices. We're your hosts, Leslie Block and Zoe Bisming, both New York City-based adolescent eating disorder psychotherapists and mothers of two, here to help you help your children fully bloom. This episode is brought to you by the ABCs of Body Positive Parenting. Our signature virtual guides provide additional research and resources to help you put body positive parenting into action so that you and your care providers can help your children fully bloom. To claim yours, please visit our website at fullbloomproject.com. Today, we're exploring the body-positive parenting question, how do I foster my children's core values to promote body positivity? That's the V in our ABC Guide to Body-Positive Parenting. Joining us, we have Dr. Emily Wacker, a licensed marriage and family therapist who incorporates postmodern and systemic approaches to treating a wide spectrum of disordered eating in her practice. She's also an active researcher and has published work related to family dynamics and subclinical eating disorders, as well as protective factors that promote recovery. She's here to tell us about what she's found in her research about the role of voice in protecting against eating disorders and how this connects to fostering core values in our kids. Dr. Wacker, welcome to the Full Bloom Project. Thank you both for having me. So I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in the state of Minnesota. Um, I have a master's degree in couple and family therapy and a doctoral degree in human development with an emphasis in family therapy. Family therapy and systems is definitely kind of my focus and my training. Um, I've done research throughout my graduate studies on sibling favoritism and eating disorders. And then more recently, my doctoral research was focused on feminist informed protective factors for subclinical eating disorders. So I shifted kind of from studying risk factors to protective factors. And I currently work as a therapist at a large treatment center in Minnesota for eating disorders. Uh, I conduct outpatient and some intensive outpatient with mainly adolescents, young adults, and their families. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Um, In terms of my interest in prevention and treatment, so when I was Considering what I wanted to study during my doctoral program, I knew that I was interested in eating disorders, families, and feminist theory, and I I just wanted to find a way for all of those variables to connect. So I, I was kind of thinking about where there are gaps in the literature and what we don't know enough about, and I started talking with a colleague. At the time, I was at a a more general outpatient clinic that did not have, it wasn't specialized for eating disorders. So I was working with just a variety of people with different issues. And I was talking with a colleague about my potential research. And, and she said, you know, I don't know that I have ever done a diagnostic assessment with a female client where something inevitably didn't come up regarding their relationship with food. 
And so remember, this is a general mental health clinic. So these people are not presenting with eating disorder issues. And so this made me start wondering, you know, how many people have complicated relationships with food or some level of eating disorder symptom that isn't quite, you know, to the clinical level and, and we're just missing them. Mm. And so with this, these people already coming into therapy for other reasons, it also made me wonder what it might be like to work with these clients at a less severe stage of the illness to avoid development into a full-blown eating disorder. Um, and so I became really interested in what we call the subclinical population, sometimes the subthreshold eating disorder symptoms is what it's called. And if you think of eating disorders on a spectrum, it's clinical levels on one end, sort of that normative discontent um, with your body and kind of quirky relationship with food on the other end that many people in society have, which is not great. And then that sub-threshold, subclinical in the middle. And so that it's really a spectrum that just distinguishes those group based on um, frequency and severity of eating disorder symptoms. So I was really interested in that middle group that didn't quite meet criteria, but had some struggle. And that's like the group that we're particularly interested in too. Um, not, Not that we're not interested in, you know, everybody on that spectrum, but part of what uh, we're excited to talk about today is, you know, the protective factor of voice, which is Mm -hmm. one that we know you've written about and that is applicable to this, this kind of subclinical population. So when, when you talk about voice in your, in your work, what are you talking about? Lots of people are going to hear the word, you know, voice as a protective factor and helping your child develop, you know, a healthy body image and protect them from eating disorders. But for our purposes today, when you talk about voice, what are you talking about? Like, what's the definition we need to hold in our minds as we have this conversation with you? Yeah, definitely. Um, because it is, it's a big concept, right? And there's a lot of ways we can interpret it. So the the definition that I used was from uh, Belenke and colleagues and Um, They define it as an aspect of psychological empowerment that occurs through the relational collaborative process of expressing oneself in relation to others. So I was really looking at this relationally in terms of how voice is experienced in relationship with yourself, how you talk to yourself and internalize those thoughts and beliefs, as well as how you communicate and vocalize your opinions to others. Okay, so... What did you find out about this? You know, how does having this relationship to voice protect a child or a person from from developing an eating disorder? What did you what did you find out there? Yeah, so I'll speak a little bit to um, kind of what I first found when I was researching this, and then I can we can speak more later to the the specific facets of my study, but. I think in terms of the connection between voice and developing an eating disorder, there was there was an interesting study by Brown and Gilligan that wasn't looking at eating disorders in particular, but really just the transition from what we would call girlhood into adolescence. And it was over a five-year span, they found that these girls, young women, became increasingly reluctant to speak their true thoughts and feelings. So really moving away as a means of social conformity, just moving away from their own voice. So they would silence themselves in relationships, avoid conflict, put the needs of others ahead of themselves. So that that was part of why I was really interested in it. Like, why does this, 
why does this happen for particularly females that we get away from our genuine voice? Just to clarify, uh, that that was like a finding kind of across population-wide that many girls experience this change shifting away from their genuine voice into more conformity. Yes, that was not specific to eating disorders. Yeah. That was sort of what they were saying was just kind of a general phenomenon yeah. that happens. Yeah. An unfortunate general phenomenon. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and so what what they've also found then, if we add eating disorders into the mix, is because there is this shift during adolescence where it is shifting a little bit from being relational to being more autonomous. Um, people where you know you you're less dependent on your family and sort of more figuring out who you are as an individual. Um, research, um, this comes from Olson in 1995, she found that women who developed eating disorders during that adolescent period, they experienced an even greater loss of voice. So that sense of not speaking up, silencing themselves in relationships. So a lot of, you know, myself and feminist researchers are just, we're questioning why, does this loss of voice really have to happen? Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, it's, if it's already present, let's do something to foster it, right? Let's not let it slip away. So this idea that it, your genuine voice is something to conceptualize, right? Or your child's genuine voice is something to conceptualize. How can parents help their kids develop one so that if it starts to fade away, they can know it. Because this idea, right, it it sounds like you have to have developed one in the first place in order to have a concept of a loss. So if we could talk to you a little bit about how parents can help their kids actually develop one and hold it in mind, I think that would be very helpful to know. Absolutely. So I'll speak a little bit to, I think this, this first part might be helpful in understanding then what to do. So in my research, without prompting participants to speak about like their voice and their eating disorder voice, and I was looking at people with subclinical symptoms, they started sort of spontaneously speaking about their eating disorder as though it was a separate voice, like with its own thoughts and feelings. So they would have like what I named their genuine voice, which felt more consistent with themselves and then their eating disorder voice. And so like an example of that would be my genuine voice wants me to be social, um, eat restaurant food, go out with friends. My eating disorder wants me to isolate. So there was like this tension that happened. And I do want to say that I can't take credit for the concept of genuine voice. Um, Carolyn Costin has really done a lot of phenomenal work around that and mm-hmm. um, feels that healing and connecting to your your genuine self is what really heals your eating disorder. And so what I was doing was just kind of expanding on that and seeing how it looked in the context of subclinical eating disorders. So now just having that understanding, I think will help understand then my, my further results in terms of how parents can one, foster that genuine voice. And two, if there is some eating disorder stuff going on, how they can help that separation. So one of the first things that I found is just helping your loved one to develop an understanding of their values. And I know that that seems, that seems really broad or, or it seems um, like how do, where do I even start with that? But 
if we need participants to create some kind of separation between an eating disorder voice and a genuine voice, they have to have a framework of their values and what their genuine voice is. And I think particularly at a young age, that can be difficult. So I would encourage parents to be curious starting at a young age, let them explore things that are important to them, interests that they have, uh, beliefs that they have that may, may or may not be different from yours. As an example, I know several participants identified um, just being able to like give back to the community was something that was a value that developed for them. And so when they felt connected to a community or that they were communicating in some kind of activism, there was more of their genuine voice kind of came through. They felt connected to that. And then they were able to connect to like finding self-worth and a sense of who they are with that connection to community rather than relying on like appearance and weight status mm-hmm. and those kinds of things. I'm just going to jump in because I, I think that yeah, yeah. what we're constantly talking about here is this danger that this massive risk of internalizing that thin ideal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of is what connects all of our episodes, how, how risky it is and how like everybody's really at risk of that in our, in our culture and our society. And so what you're referencing is that it's like that that's one value that could get adopted. It's an unfortunate one, but like mm-hmm. identifying with your weight and shape, for example, as sort of how you know who you are and you're offering like an alternative way of identifying who, who you are, like connecting to a value system that's not related to this internalized thin ideal that we, we wrestle with week after week here. Absolutely. And that's where that separation becomes so important because I think it's hard. It's really hard to live in this culture and not believe some of that or, or be exposed to some of that. And so if individuals can say, you know, there's this part of me that really is clinging to this thin ideal, I can feel that, but I have this really solid, like, I'm starting to explore community involvement and I'm starting to explore these other things. And the two of those don't really mesh then there's the sense of I can pull more towards the values that feel right to me. But I do think that parents can be so instrumental. That's such a hard task to do at any age to identify your values and really stick to them. And I think that parents can be really instrumental in helping to identify those, helping kids identify those, and then also how they can help them really navigate that. And what is important to you? And does this align with your values? So really like having that conversation or those those conversations, however kind of age your child is, form it around obviously their developmental place, but to be fostering this sense of genuine, what does my kid genuinely care about mm-hmm. before, and really, you know, if, if we're speaking to a parent out there right now that has kind of pre-adolescent kids, this is such a important value to bring to the parenting relationship is really helping the child identify their values and also hearing the child's values and seeing them and fostering them so that they're strong during that phase that you were mentioning where they kind of start to maybe slip off their values and into what conforming to other values that they're seeing. Exactly. And being okay that 
that one, that their values may be a little different than yours or, or are yeah. different than yours were when you were younger. And knowing that values shape and change and evolve and it's a process, but they need they need a starting point if they're going to evolve. Using the word voice and value, their values and voice interchangeably. Like your mm-hmm. voice, it is your value system, like your internal one. And when you speak up about what's important to you, your voice, it's, it's just giving voice to your values and your values, like who you are, as opposed to the value coming from how thin you are or sort of what kind of some cultural value that might be actually problematic and land you over time in an, like in our therapy practice office, trying to distinguish, well, what's your genuine voice from what's your eating disorder voice, which is kind of further down the line. Right. And I think that brings up an important point too around kind of the three, the three components of my work that I think can really be applicable to this is that there's safe relationships, there's empowerment, and then there's voice. And so what I found is that through safe and supportive relationships, and again, I looked at, you know, 18 year old to 25 year old, so younger adults, but in safe and supportive relationships, if they feel empowered, like if they feel that um, they have some agency in that relationship, they can they can communicate directly, they can assert their needs, they're going to be more likely to use their voice and, vi- and vice versa, right? Like if in a safe and supportive relationship, they can speak up and they can have direct communication and be assertive, then they're going to feel more empowered in their day-to-day life. So those all sort of fit together as well. That's a, it's a helpful, like those little buzzwords, safe relationships, empowerment and voice and mm-hmm. how they all, I, I'm imagining like a little, like not flow chart, but kind of right. <laughs> like mm-hmm. in a safe relationship, you can speak your truth and have your voice and therefore feel empowered. If you're feeling empowered, you can have access to your voice and probably form safe relationships as a result of being authentic. So mm-hmm. I think that's really helpful for our our listeners. Yeah, I mean, it kind of speaks to environment also, right? Like the the genuine voice needs some element of environmental variable to be there and to be empowered to come out. And it sounds like that variable that you found was really around safe and supportive relationships. Mm -hmm. And I can speak a little bit more to kind of what some of the things that I found around how participants experienced those relationships as safe and supportive and like how parents can foster that if, if that's helpful. Yeah. What do you mean? You know, I'm, I'm as a parent, I'm thinking, well, what do you mean? And how do I, how do I make that happen for my kid right now? Yeah. So if we're thinking of these different, we've got kind of empowerment, we've got voice and we've got safe relationships. So as a parent, um, you know, encourage, and we talked about this a little bit with the value system, but encourage vocalization of opinions, even if they differ from yours. Mm-hmm. So really foster this sense of personal agency with your loved ones. What I found in my study is that a lot of participants describe that in these safe relationships, they could vocalize their opinions and they can be direct and they could be assertive. Um, in their supportive relationships. And so that way, like if they were making decisions or they needed help with something, they could go to that person and they felt that it was a safe place to take advice from that person. Or if they, if they decided not to take advice from the loved one, that was okay too, because the relationship was safe and they felt empowered to do so. 
Something else that I found was, and again, this sounds so, it sounds so simple, but I just, I don't think that we can, we can't emphasize enough how important this is. Just really taking the time to understand what's important to your loved one and what's on their mind. So we really cannot underestimate the power of truly being seen and heard and understood. I I can give just an example of a participant that I interviewed and she said, you know, I wasn't, it was like my eating disorder was speaking for me. And these, these are her direct quotes. It was saying, somebody pay attention to me. I'm struggling with this. Why doesn't anyone want to help me? And then my partner sort of stepped in and said, look, it's okay. We'll do this together. Let's do this. I'm here now. And she said, I feel like these are still symptoms that I have, but they're they're no longer so outwardly destructive. So she doesn't have to communicate using her body and her symptoms anymore. She really felt understood and connected to this person and she can use her voice. So the million dollar question, if each parent listening today took away and did one thing on a daily basis or a weekly basis, like what would you say to them would be the thing to foster or spend time with, be intentional around? Wow, that's such a good question. Just one thing? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, right, and that's why it's, it's a hard question, to mm-hmm. be fair to you, because you're actually talking quite a bit about what parents can do, and many parents probably are doing those things, but it can be overwhelming as a parent and we can sometimes overestimate and underestimate, right? The power of certain things. So yeah, like if I could only do one thing that's, mm-hmm. that's sort of uh, infused by everything you know and you've written about, what would you tell me to do? I would say, and I think this is an important because it came directly from every single participant that I interviewed said this in in some form, I would say non-judgmental openness, which is far easier said than done, right? But this ability to really, for your child to bring something vulnerable to you and for you to say, wow, like I'm so glad that you brought that to me before making a judgment, before panicking, before saying like, ah, you, you haven't been eating, you know, just really being open in a non-judgmental way about what's going on for them, what their behaviors might be communicating, because that's where that fostering of safety and support really starts. I can see that just applying also to kind of what we were talking about in terms of fostering a genuine voice. If we can be non-judgmental with our children when they're developing their, mm-hmm. what they care about and be non-judgmental about that and let them, let them discover, then they can feel safe with that, you know, not judged mm-hmm. by it and go with it and have mm-hmm. that relation, that stronger relationship to their values and, and voicing those values and be empowered. So that, that element of being non-judgmental when they bring anything, when they just with anything with them, yeah. you know, why I love that is like you said, it's easier said than done, but it's so applicable to everyone, right? Even if it's mm-hmm. not a parent who's worried about their child being at risk of developing an eating disorder or a poor body image that, you know, being non-judgmental 
in terms of that openness with your kids allows them to internalize that themselves and that then that's how they'll relate to themselves over time. And so what I love is that any parent listening that can be intentional about that on a regular basis might also be protecting their kid from developing an eating disorder, even if that's not their intention, right? Like, right. So it's nice to think like if you're already doing that, if you're already approaching your child with non-judgmental openness when they bring something to you, know that not only are you doing just a lovely job of parenting and helping your child develop, you know, an internalized and non-judgmental way of relating to themselves over time. Hey, Dr. Emily Wacker says you're also helping <laughs> protect them from developing an eating disorder. So I think that that's helpful too, to sort of help our listeners know, you know, what they need to be doing in order to more proactively protect their kids, but also what they already are doing that will be protecting them from developing more concerning issues down the line. So I, I love that. And I love encouraging people to really be intentional or mindful when they are doing it, practicing non-judgmental openness. I, I liked your answer. <laughs> Thank you. And, and that was, was a judgment. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That was a judgment. It was a positive judgment. We'll have to have another episode about that. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> what, how, do we, what is, how do we practice non-judgmental stance and openness? Yeah. Great. And well, I think that that yeah. is I, I think about that just as kind of wrapping this up in terms of if there's already this, because I, I think that there are so many clients that I have worked with that are fearful to tell their parents about symptoms or their parents aren't the first ones that they go to. And I think if there is already this foundation of I can bring you things and I can know that it's safe and I, I can know that it will be met with non-judgment, then when I'm starting to have like these thoughts that maybe I need to lose weight, I can bring that to you. And I know I'm not going to be judged or shamed or shot down. I mean, how protective that could be and even ever needing specialized treatment or anything further down the road. So, yeah. Yeah. Or even just so many of my clients, it, it really just starts with like the conversation around dieting and, yes, you know, with the, in the, in the, early teenage years and you know my friends are talking about this just for a child to feel like they can talk about it that this is kind of strange what's happening should I do it should I not you know like (laughs) I I don't even know what's going on here because that can sometimes really a lot of times tip someone into the illness you know without anyone meaning you know without obviously it's not ever meant to happen but just that moment where a child and their friends are talking about it and how do how do they navigate that when it's not really something that matters to them quite yet and then that would be a great place to where we were talking about earlier identifying values and like having that conversation as a parent like well, if you did start dieting, like, you know, how might that fit in with your values and how might that take away from time with friends? And that could open up a whole nother discussion, but it's, it's a very gentle and compassionate kind of discussion versus a don't diet because it's terrible. And right. Which I think is actually, I appreciate us ending on that note because you're not saying parents tell your kids don't diet. Like Mm -hmm. actually you're, you're offering parents a much more effective way to talk to their kids about something that they are inevitably going to be bombarded with or to contemplate. It's inevitable. So that message I think is really 
it's so wise. It's so useful. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, definitely. I, I really enjoyed this. I am really appreciative of the work that both of you are doing, and I hope that this reaches people that really need it. Us too. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that people are getting bombarded with, and I think that we're doing our part to just see what we can do to mitigate that. So kudos to you guys. Thank you. And to you and Kula, you're reaching in Minnesota. <laughs> So that's our show. I love talking about values. I know. I love hearing from researchers because they can really get into the details and the dynamic of what works in eating disorder prevention and why. Totally. It's quite nuanced, though. I'm not sure how obvious it is to us as parents that there's quite a bit of work for us to do to help our kids develop that strong sense of self and then remain connected to it during the toughest life transitions like adolescence. Yeah, I agree. I mean, as parents, we can help our kids develop that voice by helping them model our values as a family. But also, and this is so important, identify and strengthen their own personal values. I really appreciate Emily's point about allowing room to discover that our kids may have values, interests, or beliefs that are different from ours. Did anything come up for you that you might put into practice this week with your kids? I'm really just trying to be more intentional about seeing them and hearing them, like observing them, you know, especially right now around their unique interests in after-school activities. That's the thing that I'm I'm thinking about most recently. (laughs) I'm really trying to... Notice what they want to learn more of and try to figure out a way to make that easily accessible in our lives and for them. More personally, I'm trying to model and explicitly talk about kindness with them. Mm. Uh, That's just so important to me, and I'm trying to point that out in my kids when I see it because it's a core value of mine and one that I really want to make sure translates to them, if at all possible. Mm -hmm. One thing I did do recently was I looked on Amazon about all the books Mm. that talk about kindness for their age. And I found one I really liked. I bought it and I I read it regularly and it always makes me happy when they choose to hear that book. So that's one way that I feel like I'm I'm being more intentional about it. Mm -hmm. How about you? Mine's also been more observational. I'm just trying to pay more attention to the differences in my boys' interests and temperaments and trying to be mindful of the aspects that I identify with and the ones that are totally foreign to me. And I know we're going to talk about this later when we get to non-judgmental stance in future episodes, but I think it's fair to say that sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it can be harder than we maybe even want to admit when we are noticing that our kids are a little different from us or that they have different personality style or just plain different interests. I mean, I know I was telling you about my son's interest in the train. It's like not an interest of mine. And yet how do I cultivate curiosity to sort of foster whatever that means for him? And so seemingly not so directly related to like body positive parenting and yet 
what we're talking about is how do we help our kids find who they are so that they know who they are and are maybe not tempted towards that conformity that she's talking about and unfortunately conformity around sort of that thin ideal and body modification and whatnot. So Yeah, that they, you know, that message that they're going to be valued based on their appearance. We just want to create this strong core that that doesn't come in and like infiltrate, right? you know, that they just, they have their core values and this isn't so appealing to them to be valued in this way. Right. Yeah. Sometimes it's just not always so easy. True. But we will be talking so much more about this in forthcoming episodes and hopefully uh, empowering parents, <laughs> ourselves included, to keep up this work. And in the meantime, we hope those of you listening will let us know what you're trying out, what's coming up for you by leaving us comments and questions on our Instagram at Full Bloom Project. And as always, if you like what you're hearing, we would greatly appreciate you leaving us a review or rating on iTunes so more people can find the podcast. And remember to tune back in next time for more body positive parenting wisdom.